Good evening. So you have now um, had three full days of practice. And I'm sure you've seen the visitors coming and going, many ups and downs. Hopefully you've had some moments of clarity, some moments of kindness, and I'm sure you've had moments of difficulties. A kind of flow of experience. And so by now I know that you are having some understanding of how to practice with uh, unexpected difficulties and unexpected uh, delights and states of mind of heart of mind and heart. And I, I used to be in the financial world, and when, uh, when they issued investment uh, um, packages, they would ho- always have a disclosure that said, um, past performance is no guarantee of future results. <laughs> so I think our practice is like that, right? No matter what has been happening, you can always count on the fact that things will change. (laughs) So, um, uh, we don't know what will happen in the next moment, but I know that we can greet it with some kindness and curiosity because things are forever impermanent. Tonight, we'll be investigating the, a second, the second Brahma Vihara. We talked yesterday uh, about metta. I introduced the practice in the afternoon, and Sharon introduced it last night in uh, her talk. And uh, as as we said, we'll be unfolding the um, the, the all four Brahma Viharas in her, our evening talks uh, this week. So tonight, the second is uh, Karuna. Uh, compassion. As Sharon said last night, she described uh, metta as the heart that meets experience with kindness. This uh, tender, gentle practice of metta enables us to meet what is difficult, to touch touch it without uh, turning away and to um, respond appropriately. As we said uh, yesterday, uh, metta is like the sun, sometimes even translated as the sun, so that the rays, uh, you, you can imagine the rays of metta, of the sun of metta, as being the emanations of Uh, karuna, which is compassion, uh, sympathetic or appreciative joy, mudita, and equanimity, upeka. And as we've been also saying over and over and over again, that although we're presenting these in a linear fashion, it doesn't mean that that's our experience. Our experience isn't linear. It's not as if we experience metta and then somehow... Um, you know, c- 
compassion follows and then uh, mudita follows and equanimity follows. Of course, these qualities of mind and heart we uh, talk about um, as ways of meeting whatever experience is arising. And of course, by now, after three days of your practice, you know that there's no way we can predict what experiences will arise. And just for full disclosure, before I came here uh, tonight, I did get the news that a friend of mine is, who has been very ill is uh, near to uh, the end of her life. And so it, was, it seemed to me to be uh, particularly poignant uh, to give this talk tonight. It was just an underscoring of how uh, we can't control what happens. We can't control uh, the time. We know that we're all going to die. We j just can't control the time, and we, the time is unknown, just like everything else in life is unknown. Sharon said last night, um, these qualities of heart, these Brahma-viharas, these boundless qualities, these best homes, these divine abodes, are not to be found outside our, of ourselves. They are innate qualities that are what the Dalai Lama describes as our, birth, our, birth, our birthright. Sorry. So we uncover the obstacles to our knowing them or to manifesting them, rather than trying to uh, attain them or acquire them externally. And of course, Bhante spoke about bhavana and cultivation. And so once we begin to identify the obstacles and uncover them, our, our work is to cultivate their manifestation in our lives. So the heart of metta has the capacity to transform the sorrows of our lives into a stream of compassion. And it arises when we allow ourselves to be touched by pain, when we allow ourselves to be touched by the difficulties of ourselves or of another. When metta encounters suffering, the emanation of the heart is compassion. Whether the suffering is that of our own or of the world, the natural response is compassion. It's care and concern. And the natural response is compassion when there is awareness, when there is mindfulness, when we know that this is what is being touched. When we turn our kind attention to pain and difficulty, compassion arises. What we have in common is that none of us wants to suffer. Every one of us who is in this human body wants to be happy. We know that quite clearly. And yet we carry the pain and the grief of the world 
and the loss that is natural to life. You may have noticed that already in your three days here. As Larry said, the Taoists call it the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. This is our life. It's not a mistake. It's not that we've done something wrong. It's not that we haven't figured it out or we didn't get the key when they were handing it out, right? Sometimes it feels that way as if everybody else has the key and we don't. But this is what happens when we take on a body. It comes with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So not one of us is outside of the pain of life. It's always very comforting to me, and maybe it's a bit naughty of me for it to be comforting of me, for me. When I read the stories of the Buddha, and they say that after he, was, he had back pain, right? So, and he had back pain after his enlightenment. After his enlightenment, the Buddha had back pain. So in many, in some of the suttas, it says the Buddha calls on Ananda, who is his cousin and his attendant who was always with him, and says, Ananda, you do the Dharma talk tonight, right? Because I've got back pain, I'm going to go and lie down. So this is the first noble truth of the Buddha, that there is suffering. There's suffering in life. These four noble truths, for those of you who are new to these teachings, the Buddha taught after his awakening. The, first, the very first teaching that he gave was on these basic truths. The first tr- truth that there is suffering, there is difficulty. The Pali word is dukkha, which is not quite, it's, uh, suffering is, is, is the ubiquitous translation of the word, but it's, it, it's not quite precise. Um, I understand from the Pali scholars that dukkha uh, sort of signifies, a, it's like a, a, a wheel that's off of its axle. It's not quite there. So it's sometimes translated as unsatisfactoriness. It's sometimes, um, uh, tran- I've seen it translated as um, uh, pain, but, I, but suffering is the more ubiquitous um, translation. And then there's a second truth, that there, is, that there is a cause for dukkha. And we summarize the teaching that that causes uh, the, the mind that clings, the mind that craves. And the third truth, that suffering has the potential for cessation. It can cease. There is an end. It's kind of a relief that it can cease. And the fourth is that there is a path to the cessation of suffering, which the Buddha laid down and called the Noble Eightfold Path. So tonight we're addressing uh, the capacity of this heart to respond to this dukkha, to this suffering in life. And we know that. We know that we've suffered loss. We know that we've suffered pain. We know that we've suffered illness and rejection and the aging of this body. And many of us have suffered 
all different kinds of abuse, all kinds of losses of things and of uh, people we love. that we've suffered by not getting what we want and by getting what we don't want. And losing, we lose. We've been betrayed by people we trust. We've been betrayed by sometimes our very government, the government that was set up to protect the, the least of us. And in so many ways, our hearts have been broken. So the practice of compassion is how we turn the lens of kindness, the heart of kindness, the heart of metta that we have been cultivating for these last couple of days along with the mindfulness practice. We turn our lens through those practices and we see how we can bring a gentle and kind attention to all of the experiences we meet all of them. We don't, nothing is left out. Everything is embraced, is held together so that we're not excluding anything and we're not thinking, we'll keep this, we'll hold on to this and we'll push this away. And we know that this practice, those of us who've been doing it for several years now, as Sharon said, she's been doing it for 40 years and Many of us have been doing it for many, many years. And we know that it can bring profound transformation, profound transformation, and that's why we stay with it. We not only carry our own pain, but we carry the pain of the world because we are not disconnected from it. Several of us have been talking about the fact of our interconnectedness with all life that we are all in this web of life together, out of which it is impossible for us to fall. We're not disconnected from our country. We're not disconnected from the wars in Africa or in the Middle East, the rebellions in the Middle East. We're not disconnected from the violence in our own streets. And no matter who we are or what station of life we're in, or whatever identity we decide to take on of our ancestry or our orientation or our gender or our economic class or all the ways in which we take on these small identities to which are smaller than we actually are. We can never fall out of this web of life to which we all, every last one of us, inexorably and inevitably belong. It's not possible. We can try, but it's not possible. And if you've been doing the practice of all at all for however long, you know that the transformation that it brings in your own life brings transformation not just to you because you're connected, but to your family, to your community, to your country, and our world. And I can tell you, as you already know, because you have access to the different media that pounds us every day, TV, the newspapers, the internet, 
that we are sitting here in a country that's born uh, from oppression, born into an ideal of humanitarianism and kindness. Yet we're in that part of the cycle of our history where cruelty seems to be woven into the fabric of our society. We were born from the weight of oppression into the ideal of freedom. And a central tenet of our, of our founding was based on the concern and the protection for the least of us. And it's descending now, as you can see, as we all can see, into disdain for and blame of the most unfortunate among us. There seems to be a growing callous indifference to suffering. It permeates our public discourse, and our public discourse has become bombastic and cruel. In our social policies, there is wealth centricity and polarization by ideology. We've lost our way in the environment. We seem to think it's okay for us to despoil the environment and to contribute. Uh, we're, we're in a quest for more and more and more and more and more. And we're worsening or speeding up the extinction of many species of beings that inhabit our planet. And so, of course, this infuses our uh, inner as well as external environment. And we know that what can happen is that our hearts can close if we're not vigilant. And if there is not an explicit intention on our part for us to have an awareness of the movement of our own hearts away from the suffering, because we're afraid we'll be, we'll be overwhelmed by it. And that spontaneous arising of compassion in the face of suffering is exactly and precisely what prevents us from moving or turning away and what allows us to use the lens of suffering the lens of kindness to be with suffering. There's a, a, um, a story that I'd like to read to you, and I ask for your indulgence because it's a little bit lengthy. I used to have to walk through it automatically. You don't bother to look. You certainly don't let much of it in, but it was the children themselves who began to open me up. Once it started, it began to pull me in gradually but steadily. It was very powerful. But you have to take it in at your own pace because here in the neonatal intensive care unit, you see incredible beauty and unbearable pain. And you have to figure out how to be with both. The children are beautiful, because you just get to know them. You can't really nurse them without knowing them. And you can't really know them without seeing their beauty. 
What can be more beautiful than innocence? And that affects all their features, their tininess, the eyes, the fingers, the sound of the heart. Just their breath can move you with its beauty. Part of it seems to come from how fragile they are and how uncertain it is and how long they'll live to be here. It was the use of machines and extraordinary medical measures that moved several of us to see how much distance we were putting between ourselves and the infants. Even if the machines weren't enough, though, there was that tendency to keep it impersonal, to keep your distance. And you knew that it wasn't any good for the children, least of all. So a group of us began to talk about it, to open up to our feelings, to decide to be with the children more. And when it got too hard and we broke down, we'd support each other and talk it over. The more we opened up, it became natural that we began the new practice of holding infants when the time came for them to die. It wasn't a decision so much as something we became ready to do. At the end, we'd take them off the monitors and into our arms in a rocker, and we'd sit with them in their final moments. It tears you apart because holding them, sometimes you can feel them go. And the death itself is different. On the machines, it's monitored as brain death. In your arms, it's the heart and the breath. You feel 10 dozen things at once, terrible sadness, because you become attached to the child, but glad too, because their suffering is about to end. And something like awe and wonder and empathy for the parents. Like there must be some kind of explanation for all of this, for something you don't yet understand. And patience too, that things become more clear in time and peace of mind because you're doing the best you can, and humble to be present at such a moment, all of the above, often at once. You're sitting with these feelings as well as sitting there with the child, but it's a final act for them as well. You're offering what peace you have come to, and it creates such intimacy, impossible to describe. You're so right there with them. This is a beautiful description of the power of presence imbued with the quality of care and of love, the quality of compassion. We can hear that it takes courage and strength to be fully present to ourselves and to others, to the world, when things are not so easy when they're challenging or confronting. And when you think about this ability to meet suffering, this kind of deep, natural suffering, we begin to think that even in those times when we think compassion may be inappropriate, when we look at injustice, or racism, or oppression. And it's hard for us to um, have a heart that meets that kind of suffering with compassion, 
perhaps rage gets in the way or anger. It's hard for us to see this whole range of human experience when it feels so personal, the whole range of the ways in which we think we can suffer. As teachers, we sit in meetings with you and we hear your stories, and some of them are heartbreaking. What is it that allows us to meet you right where you are? It's the heart of love. It's the heart of kindness that emanates and manifests as compassion. And we move from the personal to the universal in this contemplation or meditation of the first noble truth and the heart that can meet it. Even though we see in our lives, in our personal lives, the losses that we suffer, and we see in the lives of our friends and our family and our colleagues and our students and our teachers the losses they've suffered, but we also see that the suffering is universal. On a three-month retreat many, many years ago here at IMS, I was uh, sitting um, with a friend of mine. A friend of mine was also sitting the retreat, and she left after uh, six weeks. And I was sitting right over there where Jill is. And as she rolled out her suitcase at the front of the building, I happened accidentally to walk out at the same time that she was leaving. And uh, as she was leaving, I went over to her and um, we embraced. This is not a role model for how you should behave. She was leaving. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she just kind of whispered something in my ear about my husband, whose name was John, and said, you know, would you like me to say anything to John? And I said no, and she left, she drove away, and um, I I walked back into the building. And as I walked back into the building, something apparently was triggered when she asked me about um, John, because my father's name was also John. And it seemed to, it was six weeks into the retreat, so my mind and heart and body were pretty still. And somehow that, just that whisper in my ear triggered a, a, a memory of my mom leaving, for which she had very good reason, when I was five years old. And um, that receiving that experience as a five-year-old, I realized, uh, was felt like, even though rationally and cognitively it it was okay, it was not a problem that my mom was leaving for the time that she needed to leave, that five year old girl received that as abandonment. And so for the next few days in that retreat, incredible waves of sadness rolled through my body. And it, it was almost uncontrollable sadness. And I went to my teachers and I had Um, meetings with my teachers and they made lots of suggestions about ways in which I could work with it, which were all very helpful. 
and yet it felt as if this deep ocean of sadness needed to be um, worked through in my body and in my heart. And so it went on for several days, and uh, every time I came into the hall and tried to sit, I couldn't sit. I would, uh, I would have to leave because the, the waves of tears and sadness was so compelling and so powerful. And finally, I was able to, the, the, it, it, it worked its way through, and I was finally able to come back into the hall and sit. And so the first time I sat down on my cushion and was not weeping, I sat and things got very clear. My mind felt clear, my heart felt lighter. And as I sat, I closed my eyes, and as I started to be with my breath, an image of a most beautiful five-year-old girl appeared before me. And she sat there, her image stayed in front of my face for a few minutes, and she just looked at me. And then she sort of approached me and went behind me. And subsequently, for the next, I don't know how long it was, pictures of five-year-old girls kept, kept coming in to my consciousness. Five-year-old girls of all races, all shapes, all sizes, um, all continents, all nationalities, just would come, present themselves, and leave. Present themselves and leave. And as I sat there, I realized that these were all five-year-old girls who had been abandoned. And as I understood that, um, that experience, what I began to realize in a visceral, experiential, not a cognitive way, was that the abandonment that I felt that I'd taken so personally was in fact a universal experience. That, that it was not my abandonment, but actually it was the abandonment. And I understood in a very deep way that that abandonment, that version of suffering, was not, uh, not mine to hold on to, not mine to claim, but actually a way of understanding the suffering of the world. That there had been millions of daughters who had been had to have been left, had to be left by their mothers throughout life and throughout history, throughout the history of the world. And that even though I experienced it in a very personal way, that this universal experience was something that I could join. And I could join it as a universal experience and not take it so personally. And I, I've read Thich Nhat Hanh talking about his, um, his investigation into compassion. And he said that he is not, he understood, he is, his understanding of compassion, which as you know, for, if you've done any reading of his books, is very profound, that his understanding of compassion has never come from intellectual investigation, but has always in fact come from his di direct experience of suffering. 
And what that points to for me is that compassion is the, as the classical texts say, it's the quivering of the heart in response to the suffering of another. And that, that this quivering of the heart, this compassion, is not, um, is not pity. It's not, a, it's not a distant experience. It's not an experience that comes because you poor thing are over there suffering and I'm here, I'm not condescending or um, uh, seeing you as different or uh, distant from me, but in fact that we are bound up together in this human experience and that, you, that as I suffer, so do you. As there is pain and loss in my life, so there is pain and loss in your life. And the quivering of the heart of metta in response to that pain is that compassion and not uh, pity. So we are given in our lives a certain amount of the suffering and we're asked to bear it. This is from Piravilyat Khan, who is a Sufi master, died a few years ago. He, says, he said, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart. And therefore, each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. When we understand the deep connection that we have in which we share the pain, we can indeed meet it in joy and not in self-pity. And of course, this also applies to joys, but tonight we're considering suffering and tomorrow we'll consider joy. I'm sure that's good news for you. So when we understand this deep connection that we have, this universal connection, we're able to express compassion, not in a way where we think about it as a good idea or as a contrived or in a contrived way, but we're able to meet it with open eyes, with open ears, with an open heart. And this is appropriate response. There's a beautiful story of a Zen master when asked, what is Zen? What is the meaning of Zen? He said two words, appropriate response. It's so simple. And yet that is what we are really considering tonight when we consider compassion. That there is an appropriate response. And that appropriate response is not turning away, it's not shunning, it's not shrinking away because there's something wrong, because there's suffering. But that we're able to know exactly what is needed and what is needed to be done. There's a wonderful story of the Buddha uh, with a sick monk who was said to um, be in terrible condition. There were sores all over his body. And the Buddha goes to his community of monks and he says, 
please take, go and take care of this monk. And they all say, oh, oh, not me. No, no, no. He looks terrible and he smells even worse. So I'm not going there. And the Buddha himself went and cleaned up the sick monk. And what he said is, when you care for the sick, you're caring for me. There is no higher service that you can do than this. So compassion is really a gift of presence and an act of courage. It's the freedom to be with something unconditionally that has the... um, that has the, 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 the potential to be overwhelming w- without referring to it, to whether we like it or not, or whether we should be there or not. It's complete presence, complete presence. And presence is desperately needed in this world because it flows, because everything flows from the heart. The greatest danger that we face in our world today is the deadening and the numbing of our heart-mind. Larry, Larry said the other night, he explained that in the Asian language, chitta is the combination of heart and mind, that there is no word that describes either of them separately. There's chitta, heart-mind. And we have all of this technology which has the potential to deaden us and numb us so that the presence that is naturally ours becomes lost. I don't, I don't think I've ever, I think um, I gave a similar talk to this before and I used this quote from President Obama, but that was the first time and this is the second time I've ever used a quote from a president so it's historical. He said, you know there's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit, but I think we should talk more about our empathy deficit, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through the eyes of those who are different from us, the child who is hungry, the steel worker who has been laid off, the family who lost their entire life that they built together when the storm came to town. When you think like this, when you choose to broaden your ambit of concern and empathize with the plight of others, whether they are close friends or distant strangers, it becomes harder not to act, harder not to help. I hope you choose to broaden and not contract your ambit of concern. Not because you have an obligation to those who are less fortunate, although you do have that obligation. And not because you have a debt to all of those who helped you get where you are, although you do have that debt. It's because you have an obligation to yourself. Because our individual salvation depends upon our collective salvation. And because it's only when you hitch your wagon to something larger than yourself 
that you will realize your true potential and become full-grown. Not too bad for a president, is it? So as I said, the classical texts refer to compassion as a quivering of the heart in response to suffering. And the roots of the word are calm and passion. Calm is with, and passion is to feel, feeling. So it's to feel with. It feels with the suffering of ourselves and that sense of connection where the suffering of another is not separate from our own. It's the sincere wish that all beings, so it excludes none, all beings be free from suffering. And it extends, as I said yesterday in the introduction to the metta, it extends out to what the Native Americans called all our relations, to way beyond the closed circle of our small family, to all our relations, everyone who is on this planet with us. Because compassion opens the heart, dissolves cruelty and selfishness and narrow-mindedness. And so in the practice of karuna or compassion, we say, may all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Or, the, or if we, we work in the same way in the compassion practice with a progression of people. So we start with a friend who is suffering and we move through different categories of people in the same way that we do with the metta. So we say, may you be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. And the foundational level of this practice is empathy. Being with calm, passion, being with feeling, being with suffering. And its movement is toward the pain. And when it sees suffering, it's moved to concern and it's moved to care. So uh, Bhante described, as, as I did yesterday also, the... Um, near and far enemies of these Brahma-viharas, these boundless qualities of mind. And the far enemy of metta is hatred, and the near enemy is attachment. So the near enemy in the teachings is a quality of heart or mind that masquerades as the, as the Brahma-vihara, but is not quite it. So with compassion, the far enemy is cruelty, and the near enemy is pity, as I was talking about before, where we think that the person is different from us, not part of us, and so they're over there, and they're a poor person over there suffering, but it could never happen to me. But our, as, as I said, our wisdom deeply understands the universality of suffering, and understanding in this way awakens our compassion. We want to relieve the suffering. And we can feel the suffering as other, of others as I did with the experience of the five-year-old girls. We, we're all part of the same web and we all share the same air 
It's like Sharon's subway car last night. Shantideva, who was an 8th century monk in India, said, life is like a single body organism. When the foot is hurting, the hand goes out immediately to alleviate the pain. Not because the pain is felt in the hand, but because there is a shared sense of suffering in the one body. As our own heart opens and is healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. And compassion is not a passive activity. It's an active activity. It's an active aspiration, a movement of the heart that in addition to feeling the suffering of ourselves or of another, it wishes immediately to relieve it, to alleviate it. It wishes it to be healed or alleviated. And sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. But the mo- that movement of the heart is the same. So we set the intention to relieve suffering by reflecting on what it is we want to see in our own lives. The understanding that we don't want to suffer, that we want to be happy. So what is our intention? Is it competitiveness? Is it envy? Is it cruelty? Or is it kindness and care? We always have a choice. And we need conscious intentions to set our directions. The Buddha said that wherever we put the mind, that's where it will incline. And where we put it over and over and over again, that's where it will, where grooves in to our habits and that's where it will continue to incline. It's easy to turn away from suffering. It's easy to distract ourselves and to ignore it. And in the long run, what happens? It's ourselves that we're ignoring. One part of the organism is hurting, as Shantideva said, and the rest of the organism turns away. So a very important aspect of compassion is our mindfulness practice, where we're trained, we understand how to turn the mind towards the difficult, not away from it. We don't run away. Because what we usually do with pain when we feel it is we turn away, we run away, we try to avoid it, we deny it, we um, have all of these strategies because we don't want to feel it. There's nothing wrong with that because, of course, we'd rather feel joy. It's It's a natural thing. But the problem is that the strategy doesn't ever completely work. Ajahn Chah, um, a great forest master of the 20th century, said there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering you refuse to face and it just grows, and the suffering that you turn to that ends suffering. So it's our choice, because it's impossible to ever fully escape it. It's wiser to turn towards it, to feel it, to face it, and to understand it. 
and by turning the kind-hearted attention to it that the metta practice cultivates, as that touches the suffering, it naturally then turns to that appropriate responsiveness. So when we're feeling overcome with pain and sadness and loss and grief and terror, those experiences that all come up in our lives and may have even come up in this retreat for you already from time to time, they can all be met with the intention and the practice of karuna. Compassion. The phrase is, may I be free from pain and suffering. Or may I hold suffering with ease. Or I care that I'm suffering. Or I care, care about your suffering. May it end. These are all aligned responses. So we can stay with the difficulty rather than trying to fix it. We know that our awareness practice teaches us how to stay present and steady in the face of difficulty. We learn how to be with the difficulty and that embracing quality of heart can take it in. But sometimes it's too much, it's too overwhelming, and of course we can take a break. That's learning how to be kind to ourselves. And, how, and when we learn how to be kind to ourselves, we learn how to be kind to others too. We, we sometimes, and we've all, even in our meetings today, we've been discussing, I discussed in one of my groups, the way in which we speak to ourselves can be so cruel. We would never speak to others sometimes the way we speak to ourselves. And we need to learn to notice that and learn how not to do it. We can be kind and understanding when we're suffering and when we're feeling inadequate rather than being judgmental and critical and cruel. We can see the universality of that suffering We can see the universality of that self-criticism, of that perfectionism, of that idealism that leaves us always feeling short. We can allow the quality of presence to hold pain with a sense of balance and a sense of equanimity. This is from Martin Luther King. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways in which I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. If only to save myself from bitterness, I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to transfigure myself and heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. What a powerful statement. 
we know that where we know where that led even though it led to his own demise it led to a huge measure of freedom for people who were not free so i'll close with this quote from trungpa rinpoche who is a wonderful uh, tibetan um, teacher of the 20th century. He says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible and solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or you have fallen possessively in love. But that is not awakened heart. If you search for it, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there except for tenderness. You will feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the world, you will feel tremendous sadness. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There is not skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw and tender and so personal. For the warrior, This experience of sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness, which means that you are not afraid and that if someone hits you, you will not hit him back. However, we're not talking about that street fighter level of fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. You are willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. We are here to awaken together. And if we are to awaken, we must find a way to open to the mystery of this incarnation and its unspeakable beauty and its great tragedy and everything in between. Because if you can't open to the mystery, you can't see it clearly or live wisely. And this gift of compassion, this quality of mind and heart that quivers in response to the sadness, the the suffering of uh, our world, allows us to do this. Let's sit for a moment.
May you be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.